0: Welcome to week number four in our overwhelmed series and uh, we're discovering that really so many times in our lives we could be overwhelmed and there's a lot of things that we can actually control. There's some things that are completely out of our control but, but we're learning how much God has to say in his word about how we can really uh, win over worry. And uh, a lot of what we're discussing and, and looking at in this series is some of the themes are found in this great book by Perry Noble called Overwhelmed. I've recommended it a couple times. Just wanted to do it again. Goes much, much deeper uh, onto, uh, into a lot of other subjects about being overwhelmed. Uh, but today I want to talk about being o- overestimated. Overestimated in our relationships. There, there's something about relationships that really can make us feel overwhelmed. I want to start off by, by asking a question uh, Why is it that famous people are so strange? H- have you ever noticed that? The more famous, the more strange. Uh, I I don't know if you you saw last Sunday night the Grammy Awards. Oh my goodness, all you had to do was watch 20 minutes and you'd see the parade of the strangest people on the planet right there at the Grammy Awards. Just why are famous people so strange? Or or maybe, how about this question, why do you and I act so strange around famous people? Why do we act so strange around famous people? I I know this has happened to me a number of times. Uh, One, for instance, About five years ago, uh, my pastor, Dr. Ron Cottle, uh, he, he really blessed me and, and three other pastors that I'm friends with. And he got us tickets to the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. This is like the Super Bowl of golf. I, I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And uh, so we went down there. I met uh, the other three friends of mine that are pastors, different parts of America, uh, for the Masters Tournament on Friday. And, and we went there, and I, I loved it. I mean, I, I really it was really cool seeing all those golfers. I enjoy golf. Don't get to play as much as I'd like to like every other golfer. Uh, but, but I was enjoying the tournament and then we were, we were at one of the holes uh, right there at the green and, uh, and I saw someone, I just kind of looked over my shoulder here at the Masters Golf Tournament, all these PGA stars and I was all cool with that. But then I saw someone just walking through the crowd by himself. Always oh, he's about five foot nine, kind of my build, had kind of a patchy little Beard and mustache, and hat pulled down low. And as he got closer, I recognized who it was at the Masters tournament. Except I completely froze up and I couldn't speak. And as he's walking by, I'm going, and my friends are like, What has gotten into you? I could not speak. And as he walks by, he tips his cap to me and he keeps walking. It was Emmett Smith, Hall of Fame running back for the Dallas Cowboys. And I'm a huge Dallas Cowboy fan. I saw Emmett Smith play in high school, actually, in Pensacola, Florida, when I was in college. And had followed his career and never dreamed he'd be the number one rusher in the history of the National Football League. But for the rest of the tournament, the Masters that day, all I wanted to do was watch Emmett watch the Masters. (laughs) That was all that I was concerned about. And so it just kind of proves my point. Maybe that's just a me thing. Maybe it's not a you thing. Why are famous people so strange? Now, Emmett wasn't, but but we see, it seems like more than not, they're strange. Why is it that we act so strange around famous people? I think the reason is because people become strange, the more famous that they get, and listen, none of us are really normal. There is no such thing. But it seems like the more famous that you get, the more strange you get, because you and I, we're created to worship, not to be worshipped. You and I were created to worship, not to be worshipped. And when we begin to worship a person, a celebrity, a superstar, a great athlete, movie star, whatever, you know what? No one can bear the weight of that. No one can really carry the weight of worship. And relationships are supposed to be life-giving, And so why are so many people frustrated and they're worried about their marriages? They're worried about their kids, their friendships, their relationships? Maybe you're worried today. Maybe you're angry because uh, Valentine's Day didn't go exactly the way you wanted it to. Maybe you're disappointed you didn't get that box of candy that heart-shaped that none of us need anyway, or those flowers, or whatever. Whatever. It's so important that we recognize so many times we've overestimated our relationships. And and if the reality, if if the truth is really known, the reality of what we feel in our hearts, we really worship people and put immense pressure on them that they can't really bear. And so here's the big idea today as we talk about overestimated. Here's the big idea. Only God can bear the weight of our worship. Only God can bear the weight of my worship and your worship. And when we begin to worship another person or we begin to worship another thing, you know what happens? They end up imploding under the weight of that. What does that look like? They get strange in a hurry. They get strange in a hurry. We can worship a person. We can also worship our work. We can worship our home. Make it like a palace. One little thing out of place, everything just goes apart. We can worship our bank account. We can worship our career. We can worship success. The fact about the matter is, we as human beings, God created you and I to worship. Every one of us worships. The question is, who is it that we really worship? Or sometimes, what are we worshiping? But every one of us worships in one way or another. I, I think that part of it, I've heard it said this way before, part of the reason why we almost seen this, see this epidemic, particularly in that demographic, like I said, uh, celebrities and, and uh, famous people, is the disappearance from God in our culture has caused us to put undue pressure on one another that we weren't designed for. And so you just turn back the clock, forty years, fifty years ago. A lot of the weirdness that we see in our culture today, it wasn't there. Why? Because there was a acknowledgement of God in our culture. Now, not so much. And so, what do we do? We turn. We're going to worship someone. And so many times, it's those around us or someone on the, on the, uh, uh, the television screen or or whatever. And so the instinct to worship shows up in all kinds of surprising places. And you see this almost in in our culture just getting bigger and bigger, more and more and more extreme. In social media, we're gonna talk about that uh, next week as we conclude our series. In social media, Instagram, how about weddings? Weddings now, it's it's just not even proper to just, you know, if, if you just go to the church and get married and have a little reception, it's like, what's the matter with you? If you don't bust the bank and spend a quarter of a million dollars, yeah, you know, what's, what's really happening with you? Or how about this? How about sweet 16 parties? What in the world? L- let's spend 100,000 dollars just because my child survived to age 16, Because they're breathing. They don't listen to me. They don't mind me. Actually, they're a juvenile delinquent, but let me just bust the bank account. Makes no sense at all we've had to navigate through these having three teenage daughters that have gone through each of the three of them past that 16 uh mark even proposals proposals now it's like how extreme can we possibly make a wedding proposal and it's all extreme 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 it's like we're worshiping the stuff instead of worshiping god the way that we were created to birthday parties birthday parties for kids I mean, little one-year-old, knock it out of the park. Again, spend tens of thousands of dollars for a one-year-old who doesn't remember it at all. I I remember uh, when when our oldest daughter, Michaela, was born, um, her first birthday, my wife, Susie, was actually in the the hospital for some surgery. And so she wasn't there for the first birthday. I remember I dressed Michaela up, put a little bow in her hair, and took her to the hospital. uh, And we celebrated, the three of us, in the hospital room. Well, that kind of made a mark on Susie. Uh, She didn't, she she was really torn up about that for, for Michaela's first birthday, our first child. So when birthday number two came, forget about it. We lived on a dirt road at the time in a house that was really a summer home that had been refinished. When the wind blew, the curtains inside blew as well when the wind blew outside. And we had two live ponies in a petting zoo for the second birthday. I mean, what in the world? And you know what? Michaela remembers none of it today. None of it. Just extreme, extreme. You and I were meant to worship. But see, here's the reality. For so many of us, we're looking for a Savior. And there's only one. Your spouse is just your spouse. They're not your Savior. Your two-year-old is just your two-year-old. They're not your Savior. There's only one Savior, and his name's Jesus Christ. And so here's the question today. Are you putting pressure on people that they cannot bear? Are you putting pressure on people that they cannot bear, that they cannot live under the weight of that extreme pressure? The reformer, John Calvin, 500 years ago made this statement. This quote I think is very, very true. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert at inventing idols. From our mother's womb. It it is part of our sin nature. We will always create and focus our attention on almost anything else besides God, the one who really deserves our worship. And, And I love how John Calvin put it. The human heart is an idol factory. We just keep producing them. We just keep producing them. Many of us, we just change one idol for another. One object of worship for another. Just so long as we don't worship God. And so last week, when we were talking about uh, Sabbath and and looking looking back at the Ten Commandments, I want to go back there again because the first commandment has to do with our worship has to do with our worship and also has to do with when we make idols. And God says, that's not what I want for you. That's not what's best for you. That's not how life ultimately is going to work. And when you do that, you know what? You'll feel overwhelmed. You'll feel overwhelmed. And so back in Exodus chapter 20, let's look at this first commandment of the 10. and, And listen to how God feels when we begin to attach and overestimate the value of things and people in his place, his rightful place. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse one it says, then God gave the people these instructions. And he says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. God had rescued the people of Israel out of bondage. They were slaves in Egypt and in Egypt they had many, 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 many different gods that they worshiped, that they would go to if they needed this, if they needed that, all these different gods that they would approach. And so uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, had no problem in accepting God as a god. But now what we're going to find is after he rescues them from the bondage of Egypt, he says, no, I'm the one and only. I I don't want shared affection and attention with any of these other false gods. And so he goes on and he says in verse 3, you must not have any other God but me. Now notice there, you see this is a lowercase g. That, that means it's almost like God is saying tongue-in-cheek. You can have no other gods. There's only one God. That's capital G. That's our Heavenly Father. That's, that's, that's in the Old Testament. That is the focus. He's, he's the focus in the Old Testament. And so he says, none of these other idols, lowercase g. Really important that you notice that because when you're reading through the Bible, you'll notice from time to time, it will say other gods, and it's always lowercase g. When God is referring to himself, it's capital. That's how we can tell the distinction. And so he says to Israel, you must have no other gods. It's time for you to leave those idols, those false gods of Egypt behind you. No other gods but me. Then in verse four, he goes on and he says, You must not make for yourself, see, we do it for ourselves, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? And we need to recognize what God's saying. Human beings, you'll look anywhere and everywhere for something else to put first in your life, to have the center, to have all your attention. But God says, don't do it. Don't do it. In verse 5, he goes on and says, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, see the capital G there, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. God is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm a jealous God. I, I don't want to share your affection. I don't want to share... Number one priority, I don't want to share the center of your life with anyone or anything else. And then he makes it really, really clear. He says, you know, in a second here, the next statement he's going to make is that there are consequences to our decisions. So many times when you and I sin, we ask God to forgive us, and he does. But one thing you'll find as you read the pages of Scripture, it sets in motion consequences. And he never takes those away because those are of our own doing. And so, look at what he says, the consequences of when we put others, things, and people ahead of him. He says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. Look at this. The entire family is affected. When I sin, Greg Williamson, it doesn't just affect me. It affects my entire family. When, when, when priorities are out of whack in my life as a dad, as a husband, when, when I'm putting someone else ahead of God, you know what? It has a trickle-down effect. It affects those that are close, and it hurts those that are closest to me. He, he says, uh, the entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Wow. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? And, and, and the, the fact is, what I do has an impact on others and affects those around me, especially those in my family. I don't know what the pushback here is. It's like, that's not fair. That just doesn't seem right. That's not fair. See, how could God be like that? You know, what is he, some kind of egomaniac? Well, hold on, we haven't finished reading yet. Because there's another side to the coin. And the fact about the matter is what he says right here, this is not fair. It's not fair at all. He he says what you do, it will affect not only your children, but your children's children and your children's children's children. Your great-grandchildren will be impacted. Wow. He's warning us there are consequences that we choose when we put someone else ahead of God. When we put something else ahead of God. But look at the other side of the coin, the next verse. He says in verse 6, But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. That's not fair, is it? He says the negative consequences go three generations. Three to four generations, the negative consequences. The positive consequences, a thousand generations. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. And, and so maybe you know, you're you saying, well, well Greg, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a Christian home and, and I'm the first, start it now. Start it now for the rest of your family tree. Start it now that these blessings that God is talking about here, lavishing unfailing love for a thousand generations will overcome the disobedience of three or four generations perhaps that have gone before you. That the good overtakes the bad. That's what God's talking about here. A thousand generations. That's not fair. (laughs) That's God. It's mercy. It's mercy. And so this is so important. God is saying, I'm the only one that can bear the weight of worship. I'm the only one that can really bear the weight of any human being worshiping them. When we worship another human, they can't bear the weight of that. Not our spouse. Not, not our, our children, not our parents. No one can bear the weight of that. And when we worship other people, put them first, you know what? They get strange really quick. That's what happens. It, they um, implode under the pressure of it. See, for some, the pressure you're putting on your spouse, ladies, if you're, if you're married, the pressure you're putting on your husband, only Jesus can be perfect. Only he can. And that pressure will cause your husband to implode. He can't bear the weight of it. Husbands, same thing for your wives. None of us are perfect. And we've overestimated those those human relationships that only God is the one. If If you're single, you know, so many times, boy, just find the one and he'll fulfill me. No, he won't fulfill you. Not at all. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Bible makes it really clear. Those who are married will have trouble in this life. Yeah, that's the verse that nobody puts on the refrigerator. You don't hear that read at weddings. It's Bible. Those who are married will have trouble in this life. In fact, some translations say great trouble. That's what you sign up for when you get married. Great trouble. Because only God is perfect. And so, he says, in essence, summing this up, this first commandment, only I can bear the weight of your worship. God says, only I can bear the weight of your worship. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, before he launched his earthly ministry, when he was 30 years old, Jesus lived about 33, uh, before probably his 34th birthday, he was crucified. So really it's about three, three and a half years of what's really recorded for us in the Scripture and the Gospels of his earthly ministry, if you want to look at it that way. But when he started out, one of the first things that happened was the Bible tells us that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted by the devil. And I know you know maybe you're you're new to the Bible and and you're like, eh, "You know, that's that's why I don't like about church devil." You know, come on. You know, really, well, well, listen, hold on before you just dismiss the whole thing. Read the newspaper. There's evil in this world. Turn on the news. There's evil in this world. And if there's evil, there must be a source of evil. It comes from somewhere. There has to be a source. And so maybe, uh, you know, uh, the picture that you have of Satan with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, uh, by the way, that's not anywhere in the Bible. That was Dante. He wrote that long time after that, Dante's Inferno. has nothing to do with the Bible. But, but the word devil uh, really means tempter or deceiver. And so the Bible says there, there is an embodiment, there is a source of that evil. And it comes from the tempter, the deceiver ultimately and so Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit and look at what it says in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 it says then Jesus was led by the Spirit and so this wasn't an accident it was God's desire his plan by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and then it goes on in the next verse and it says for 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and he became hungry 40 days and 40 nights he didn't eat anything my goodness, five hours, and I'm going nuts. I'm gnawing off my hand after five hours. 40 days and 40 nights. Do you get a picture of how physically and emotionally and spiritually weak he is? And then comes the temptation. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he became very, very hungry. And then we just kind of jump forward in this temptation scene that's depicted here look at verse 8 Matthew chapter 4 next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory Satan says the devil looks look at all this it goes on next verse and it says I will give Satan says this to Jesus I will give it all to you he said watch this now if you'll kneel down and do what worship me worship me see here's the thing the devil wants to be worshiped and if you're not willing to worship him he'll settle for you worshiping anything else besides god anyone else besides god just not god and here's jesus fully man fully god i can't comprehend it but that's what the scripture says and, and by virtue of the fact that he was simultaneously fully man and God, deity and humanity simultaneously together, that humanity is prone to being tempted. And that's, what this, that's what the devil is poking at here. That humanity. Worship me instead of God. And I'll give you all of this. How does Jesus respond? Well, let me think about that. Look at what he says. Get out of here, Satan. He says, Get on up out of here. I'm not going to do it. And he goes on and says, For the Scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. And serve only Him. That's why it's so important that we know God's Word. That's what Jesus used to rebuke Satan, to rebuke the devil. He says, The Scripture says, not, this is what I say. The scripture says, this is the way. This is the way that we handle temptation. This is what the Bible says. And all three times that he's tempted here, in this temptation after 40 days, each time he says, it's written, it's written, it's written. The scripture says, the scripture says, the scripture says. And he's referring back to Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment of the 10. The scripture says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Only him. So here's the question today. Are you putting pressure on people today that you care very, very deeply about that they are not created to carry, that they're not created to bear? See, worship not only makes famous people strange, it also makes our spouses and our kids strange when we put them first. So many things that we see around us in, in our culture today is because of misplaced worship. So much of the weirdness, so much of the strange behavior because of misplaced worship on things and on people that they cannot bear the weight of our worship. Why? Because only God can bear the weight of our worship. That's why he's God. It doesn't make him strange. It doesn't make him weird. It's what he's deserving of as the creator. And that we owe as the creation. Only God can bear the weight of our worship. And and so good way to end, wind up this message today, I think, is by asking the question, what should I do? What should I do? I want to make this real practical again like we did last week when we talked about Sabbath. What should I do? Real simple, <laughs> as much as I can boil it down, what should I do? Here it is, love God the most. Love God the most. It doesn't mean don't love others, but love God the most. Love God first. Love God best love God the most let him be the center let him be the focus of our life and our thoughts because you know what happens and and it's it's kind of funny when we worship our spouse put pressure on them they can't bear when we worship our kids we, we think we're loving them but we're actually putting pressure on them and it makes them strange and kids misbehave and have all kinds of over inflated ideas about who they are but when we love god the most here's the win-win the win-win when i love christ most i love others more that's the truth When when we put God first and we worship him alone, you know what happens? We can really, truly, genuinely love others even more. How's that even possible, Greg? Here's how. Love is not something that God does. Love is who God is. It's the essence of who he is. The the clearest, most concise statement about God's character is found in 1 John, and it's this. God is love. It's not what he does. It's who he is. And, And so when I love Christ, God, when I love him the most, you know what happens? All of a sudden, the closer I get to him, the more that I can actually really love others. We're not supposed to worship others. But we are supposed to love them. How do we love the best? We love the best when we love Christ the most. As a husband, I'm a better husband to my wife Susie when I love Jesus more than her. Because when I love him the most, I can love her more. He's the one who shows me what unconditional love really is. And that transfers to my wife. Same thing with my children. When I love Christ the most, it helps me to love them more. My limited capacity, boy, maybe, maybe an hour and a half and my love runs out. Because Greg Williamson's love is completely imperfect and conditional. Completely conditional. But if I make the point to love Christ the most, there is a reservoir of love that he will flow through my life because he's first, because I worship him, that that love, it's like my life becomes a channel of God's love to flow through and I can actually love others more. Those who don't know Christ, you can't love others nearly to the capacity of someone who does. Now, that's not to say every Christian lives like this. Now. I mean, I've seen too many Christians over the years, you know, look like they're baptized in pickle juice or something like that. They're just mean and ornery little rattlesnakes. And just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Not any more than going to the grocery store makes you a turnip. I mean, it just, that's not the way to... What makes you is when you love Christ first. When you love Christ the most. That's what makes the difference. And, and so this is why I say it's a win-win. It's a win-win. When I love Christ the most, I love others more. You know, we just, Sunday, of Valentine's Day, weekend here, you want to amp up the love? Here's the thing. Don't love your spouse. Don't love your boyfriend. Don't love your girlfriend. Don't love your son. Don't love your daughter more. That's not going to help them. Love Christ the most. And then you'll love all those so much more. It's a win-win. And so I want to leave you with this, just a real practical prayer. Last week we talked a little bit about Sabbath and starting our day with with a a few minutes uh, in Scripture and in prayer. And I want to just real practically give give you a prayer. There's nothing uh, specific about this prayer. Don't get uh, too focused in on the words of it. It's the essence of it if you find yourself struggling with overestimating human relationships, someday my prince will come. It's not gonna help. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. So here's a real practical prayer. Father, help me to worship you only so that I see you for who you really are and others for who they truly are. In other words, that I properly estimate those human relationships. When I see you for who you really are, perfect, that you are love. Love is not what you do, it's the essence of who you are. And I put you first, I love Christ the most. God help me to love others more. Because Jesus is at the center of my life. He's not just something I sprinkled a little bit on of my life. Why is this so important? Well, it's the big idea today. Going back to it, only God can bear the weight of our worship. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Let's pray. Father, today we recognize that we don't live in a culture where people have carved idols. Instead, we substitute possessions and desires and even people into the place that you rightly deserve in our lives. This week, week, Lord, we ask for your help to shift our focus to you, to provide the unconditional love, approval, and acceptance that you created us to receive from you alone. And may we no longer overestimate and put pressure on other people that they cannot bear the weight of, as really we worship them, but that we worship you alone. That we love your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the most. And so, in turn, love others even more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.